really good to be with you tonight, and thank you for coming back for this last uh, bit of Lamentations. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 5, which we've just had so wonderfully read for us uh, tonight. I want to go back a few years, and uh, there was a man sat in my office, and he was simply sobbing, huge, great sobs racking his body. Uh, he could say the odd word, but not really. Uh, he was telling the real story with his whole face as this waterfall, unstoppable waterfall of tears uh, streamed down his face. And it seemed to me, as I was thinking about it afterwards, that there were different kinds of tears that this man was crying. There were what you might call hot tears, tears of anger. He'd been caught. The police had come knocking at his door. He was angry at being caught. There were tears of fear. If he's been caught, maybe he's going to go to prison. Maybe he'll lose his family. He might lose his job. There were bitter tears of wounded pride. He, he'd been someone. And now... Uh, he looked like it was all unraveling in front of him. And in amongst those hot and cold and bitter tears were also, I, I think, the first, but only the first, sorry tears. Tears of sorrow for what he had done to someone else. Now, while all of that was going on, it's not as though we could have caught and labelled each tear and said, well, this tear, that's anger. And this tear, that's humiliation. And this tear, that's bitter, hurt, pride. And this one, I can catch it and I can look at it and I can tell you that that one is fear. That's not how it works. Tears are tears are tears. But they tell a deeper story. I'd like to try and get to the bottom of that story tonight uh, via Lamentations chapter 5. Now the first question that we should ask ourselves tonight is what is new and distinct in Lamentations chapter 5 as opposed to Lamentations 1 to 4 which we've already had. Lamentations 5 keeps something that's very familiar uh, which is the 22 verse structure that we've seen in all of the chapters. Chapter 3, that was expanded to 66, but that was essentially three lots of 22. So it, it's still a, a carefully constructed poem uh, using 22 verses as before. But this time, the poet has ditched any attempt at, before we've been talking about the, each chapter is like an A to Z of grief. And the way that the poet did that was to at the beginning of every verse, he would use another letter of the alphabet. So he'd start with A, then B, then C, but in the Hebrew alphabet. He's ditched that now. And so what uh, we now have is a bit more free-flowing. But there are some really important differences. All 22 verses of Lamentations 5 are prayer. So, so that each of these verses is addressed directly to God. Uh, if you remember back to chapter 1, six weeks ago, uh, 
chapter one was entirely descriptive. You either had like a narrator describing what had happened to Jerusalem, or you had Jerusalem, in a sense, herself standing there and describing what had happened. But now we have something very different. Now we have 22 verses of prayer addressed directly to God. And the most important change is that the I that we had all the way along until now has changed to we. So up until now, almost everything has been I, as Jerusalem, as, as, as an individual, has talked about all that has happened. Now, suddenly, this prayer is a communal prayer. It is one that people are saying uh, together. And Jewish people still use Lamentations chapter 5 to mourn not only the destruction of Jerusalem, but of course those countless other pogroms and the centuries of uh, victimization that they have had. Because in a sense, these verses still feel alive. And they're one way in which the Jewish community uh, gathers their thoughts and their prayers uh, together. So what started off individual has now become communal. We have the continuing story of their present suffering, but as I said, now it is a prayer. It's not a description. And we have four perplexing but powerful final verses. Uh, you're welcome uh, to look at it in your Bibles if you'd like to. It's on page 829. But the four, the four verses that come at the end, which if you notice, the readers all read in, in unison, are really, really powerful. Verse 19, you, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. It's pretty much the first time we've had that thought in Lamentations. And uh, what seems to be going on is this, it, this is a bit defiant. So the people have just been overwhelmed by Nebuchadnezzar, the, Bab the Babylonian king. But what they're saying is, well, Nebuchadnezzar may have a throne, but uh, God is on the throne. So Nebuchadnezzar has a throne. Earthly leaders have a throne. Uh, they are due uh, when they earn it of our respect and of dignity. But it's God who sits on the throne. And the poets recognize this as they say that to God. That verse 20, and since they, they, they say again what they've been saying all along, which is this lament. Why, Lord? Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us for so long? That's still their heartfelt plea. Even at the end of chapter 5, that's still what they're saying. And it's a powerful reminder to us that sometimes we need to keep on saying that. It's not necessarily something that you just say once and then you've said it and then you look back and you say, well, I've said it once, nothing's changed. So therefore, I'm going to walk away from God or he's not interested. The people of uh, Jerusalem had said, were saying this for a long time. Verse 21 is fascinating. They say, restore us to yourself, Lord that we may return. If you notice, the, the appeal has changed. In chapter 1, the appeal to God, which was never answered, was essentially, hey God, you know, I am over here, and I am hurting, because catastrophe 
has poured down upon me. I, ju- I just need you, God, in a sense, to see what has happened to my city and to see what has happened to me. That's where Lamentations starts. Lamentations end with not an appeal against Jerusalem's enemies, the Babylonians, or even for a rebuilding of the city, or even for an end to their suffering, but I'm sure they would have liked all of those. It is a plea to know God's presence, to be restored to him, because they're aware that the relationship with him has completely fractured and has imploded. They want the relationship to be restored to him, by him, for him. And just, just as we thought it was turning around, we get verse 22, the last verse of Lamentations. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. Just for a moment, we had a whiff of a happy ending, of everything resolving, of God saying it's going to be okay. But what happens at the end? They turn right at the end, back. They turn back to self-loathing and doubt. They still can't really think anything else but that God has abandoned them. And that's what they're fearful of. You may not like the ending. You may wish it had ended differently, but it's very powerful. And of course, it rings true. So I want first to ask, how uh, does Lamentations 5 help us lament this thing that maybe we're not very good at? We don't really know what it is. How, how does it help us? I think the first thing that we see here in the change from chapters 1 to 4 through to 5 is that we lament together. This is something that we do best. In fact, we can only really do properly when we are together. We shouldn't stay isolated and alone in our grief. Many of us, of course, do. We're scared of what other people will think or say. We don't feel that we have the words uh, to share uh, what we think. And so we stay in isolated little bubbles of grief and fear and pain. The New Testament, on the other hand, says, carry one another's burdens. Part of the journey of grief is for our individual stories to become entwined together and for us to strengthen each other, to carry each other, but also to refine each other as we tell our sorrows to each other and then together we come and tell them to God. And we bring to God together the ways in which we long for him to act in our world. But of course, we live in a culture that is prone to focus much too much on our own individual suffering and to shut out the suffering of others. So for us, this is going to be extra hard. It's going to take extra work. And we live in an, essentially in an individualistic society that values that really highly. Of course, the, peop- the, the poetry that we have in Lamentations comes from a totally different time where it's much more natural for people to think communally. So we're going to do this. We're going to have to work much harder uh, because there are all kinds of barriers that we're going to have to get over. 
The second thing I'd like to think about is the relationship between sin on one hand and suffering. One of the complexities of all five poems in Lamentations is the question of where does the blame lie? Or whose fault is it? Or who is responsible for what happens? Is it, is it God's punishment that we're seeing on Jerusalem? Is it uh, the innocent suffering of the people of Jerusalem? Is it a painful lesson uh, in global politics for Jerusalem? Essentially, they were trying to make alliances with other nations when they'd already promised that they'd stay faithful to the Babylonians. Is, it, is this just politics? This is what happens. You get your hands burnt. So whose fault is it? Seems to me that there are at least three kinds of sin going on in Lamentations. There's, there's probably many more. Separating them out sort of just trying to individualize them all and, and see each one clearly and see the cause and effect is really, really, really hard. But we do have sins of the past. And we hear that particularly tonight in verse 7 of chapter 5. Our ancestors sin and are no more, and we bear their punishment. So the poet is saying, our ancestors, the people that came before, they sinned, but now we are paying the punishment. And of course, that's a very human reaction because we feel that's unfair. It's not right. Why should we suffer for the wrong that others did? But of course, we know, whether we think it's fair or not, that this is true, that we today reap the, re the rewards and the costly consequences of the imperfect people who went before us. Now that might be as narrow as our families. You know, what one generation does in any family will have profound consequences for the next generation. Many, or at least some of those consequences, are wonderful. But of course, all of us in different ways are going to be impacted by our parents, by our wider families, by the mistakes they make, by the things that they hold dear, the things that they fight for. Some of those will be wonderful, some of them won't be. And then you multiply that out to communities and to countries. And whether we like it or not, we do bear the punishment, pay the price for mistakes that have been made in the past. That's the first kind, sins of the past. There are, secondly, sins of the present or the near past. And we read those in verse 16. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us. Why? For we have sinned. The people of Jerusalem know that in their lifetime, like in, in their, not, in, not in the distant past, but in their lifetime, they have ignored the warnings of the prophets. They have rebelled against God. They have caused division and injustice and hardship and poverty through their selfishness and through their unwillingness to live for God. Um, I don't, you don't need me to tell you that the same is going on now. That not only are we living with the consequences of some of the sins of the past, but we ourselves have become part of the problem, part of the system. However much we might 
want not to, we are now failing. We are now letting God and other people down. We are now ignoring things that are crying out for justice. And we're getting preoccupied by things that don't really matter. So you've got sins of the past, sins of the present and near past. You've got a third kind of sin, though, which is sins of the present, not that were committed by the people of Jerusalem, but by the terrifying Babylonian invading army. If you go back to verse 22 of chapter 1, we hear then, I guess, this, this prayer. I mean, it's bitter and it's raw, but the prayer is, talking about the Babylonians, let all their wickedness come before you, deal with them as you have dealt with us. All of this suffering that we hear in Lamentations, all of it has been caused by sin. But as we know, sin, like tears, it doesn't come in nicely, carefully packaged portions. My sin, your sin, historic sin, all band together to create one ugly soup of suffering. And so these leftovers in Jerusalem are descendants of generations of Israelites who've rebelled against God. And this leaves a mark on their culture and their values and their attitudes. And of course, sin is still doing the same. What happened before is still leaving a mark on our culture. These leftovers of Jerusalem are themselves at fault. They have rebelled. They have ignored uh, Jeremiah in particular, the prophet who was sent to them. They've ignored him for years, for decades. They just ignored him. They told him to shut up to stop being so miserable, to stop being so pessimistic. They didn't want to hear. And of course, we do many of the same things. And the top dogs, the Babylonians, the swaggering superpower of the day, they have overstretched their hands. They have brought down an entirely disproportionate and cataclysmic amount of suffering on Jerusalem. God says to the Babylonians, essentially, chastise Jerusalem because they've stepped out of line. Babylon says in return, thank you. We will grind their bones into the dust. Now this is an insight that Jesus later amplifies. We are all sinners and sinned against. And it is a fool's game to precisely link any present suffering with past sin. Now there can of course uh, be exceptions. Uh, so if you said to me, Simon, you know, why, why, does your, why does your hand hurt? And I said, well I broke my finger. And you say, well how did you break your finger? And I said, well I punched my brother. Then it, there would be a clear link between my present pain and a past action. And so it's always a question worth asking when we are suffering because it may be that our own actions or our own attitudes have at least in part contributed to what we feel now. But of course, many, many, many times, it's not like that. And to see someone who's suffering greatly or to suffer greatly ourselves doesn't mean we conclude it is the direct and personal consequences of their own or of our own failings. 
Rather, Jesus again and again seeks, in a sense, to cut that connection that people might naturally make and remind us that we are all sinners and we are all sinned against. We are all broken and we all need to be restored. Let's then think about the nature of lament. Lamentations is teaching us that lament is never casual. It's never simply saying the first thing that comes into our heads or our hearts. What we have in lamentations is raw, but it has been organized and considered and refined. So each chapter, apart from chapter five, carefully organized. And this is because the poet wants to express things as fully and completely as they possibly can, leaving nothing out. Lament is not supposed to be entirely rational and kind of cold-hearted or cold-blooded. It's not supposed to be theologically watertight so that everything we say when we lament and pour out our hearts to God is absolutely and completely correct. In fact, that's highly unlikely. But the end of Lamentations 5 is very telling. Its end point is the desire to be restored to God. Chapter 1, we have the poet, uh, in a sense, bemoaning and regretting uh, the situation. In chapter 5, we have a whole community praying together, telling God about the situation and seeking restoration with him above all things. Now, there are so many things and people, and preoccupations, and aspirations that block God out of our lives. Wherever you are on your journey of suffering, being able, after all the confessing of sin, and all the crying, and all of the lamenting, being able to say wholeheartedly, restore us to yourself, that's the place that Lamentation says that we are aiming for. Now, you may not have got there yet. But that's like a, 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 a way marker to tell you this is where you should be trying to head, where you're no longer alone and where you're able to say to others in recognition of the broken world in which we live, God, restore us to yourself. That's where we're aiming for. Now we clearly need to finish by addressing the seeming absence of God from the whole of Lamentations. What is going on? Although it's, it's not really an absence, as so much of Lamentations is, of course, about God, or has God directly in view. But God, in Lamentations, does not appear like he does, for instance, at the end of the book of Job where God speaks out of the storm. And then at chapter 42 of Job, there's a nice, happy ending. Everything gets put back together. God, in Lamentations, doesn't appear to be active. He doesn't appear to be doing anything, apart from maybe listening. He's not a gracious, healing presence. And there is no happy ending. In fact, there's, a, there's rather a sad difficult ending in Lamentations. 
from an Old Testament point of view, it's really important to say that Lamentations is not the last word on the subject of the destruction of Jerusalem. But it is an important word. And these words, these Lamentations, all five chapters, are God's gift to us. They are a template for our tears. They give us words to say when we have no words. And they remind us that you can't hurry grief. End of chapter 5. They're still confused. They're still scared. They're still thinking deep down. Maybe God has abandoned us after all. And from an Old Testament point of view, we have Isaiah 40 to 55, uh, full of prophetic words of hope and comfort and healing. Those chapters of Isaiah are spoken to exactly the same group of people, those who survived the destruction of Jerusalem. They're spoken by the same God, but by a different prophet. If you have to sum up what's going on in Isaiah 40 to 55, it would be God saying to his people, my dear people, you have suffered greatly, but I'm going to bring you home. Since that, that, is an, that is the answer to the prayer, restore us to yourself, O God. From a New Testament point of view, Jesus chose some of those key passages in Isaiah 40 to 55, especially the end of chapter 52 and all of chapter 53. Jesus used those key passages to explain two things. Firstly, the necessity of his suffering. It had to be this way. But secondly, the redemptive value of his suffering. It was done, why? So that I could restore you to myself, says God. There will be times for all of us when we are tempted to believe that God has completely forgotten us or abandoned us or rejected us. All of those are awful. But there will be times when all of us think that. But we know now, in a way that they could not know then, that this isn't true. Why? Because of Jesus, God's Son, choosing to suffer humiliation and betrayal and the worst excesses of an invading army, to prove beyond all doubt that God longs what? to restore us to himself, to redeem our suffering. And just as importantly, what God wants to do is to transform us lot, look at us, broken but beautiful, to transform us lot into a movement of grace that catches and counts the tears of the suffering and the abandoned. That's what God is doing. Our loving God who hates sin and greed and injustice, hates them, hates the devastating consequences they have, hates that we have become broken and ruined people. And what does he do? He wades, wades into our story of tears. Jesus knows what it is to weep tears of exhaustion and sorrow and humiliation. He is our man of sorrows. Jesus knows what it is to cry to our Father in despair 
appalled at human cruelty and inhumanity. Jesus is our brother in arms. Jesus knows what it is to entrust his life into God's hands in the face of those who want him dead. He is our pioneer. He is our trailblazer. So what then is this thing called lament? And how do we as Christians, in a sense, take all that we've mined out of lamentations? And how do we take it with us on our journey together? Christian lament becomes, in the light of lamentations and all that we've learned, it becomes a spirit-inspired bringing to God of our hurts and our griefs and our concerns. And as we, we don't just bring them, as we bring them, we implore God to act, to do something. We don't necessarily know what the something is but we do know these griefs, hopes, and concerns. So Christian lament becomes a spirit-inspired bringing to God of all of those hurts and concerns and griefs, imploring God to act, to do something, and then we don't stop. We then look out more widely, and we bring the hurts and the griefs and the concerns of our whole world the world that we know God loves, we bring them to him, imploring him to do something, to better it, and if it's at all possible, to use us in the process. I'd like us to pray together now. Um, I invite you, that you don't have to, uh, to close your eyes. It's just a helpful way of of shutting out uh, some of the... Uh, stimulation in the room and focusing more directly and particularly on God. I'd like uh, to invite you to imagine two bowls, two bowls. And in the first bowl, I want you to picture your tears. These are the tears that, that you alone know about, whether you've actually cried them or whether you just feel them and sense them. These are your tears. These are the relationships that have gone bad. These are the stupidities that you've done or said. These are the things that have been done to you. These tears are your frustrations. Just picture that bowl of your tears and just quietly in your own head. Just instead of recognize what's in the bowl. My bowl, different to your bowl. So just picture what is in that bowl. And then you just need to lay that bowl aside for a second. And in the second bowl, I want you to picture the tears of the world. It's a big bowl. In that bowl, I want you to, to picture and place the, the people and the places in our world that you are particularly aware of, uh, where there is greater suffering than we can possibly describe. All those who do feel literally abandoned, rejected, 
forgotten by God and pretty much by everybody. So in the second bowl, please picture at the tears of the world. And in your mind's eye, you can do it with your hands if you want as well, I want you to, to pick up those two bowls. You're, you're holding these two things before God. Your tears, the world's tears. You're holding them. Feel the weight. And now we're going to pray. And now we're going to give them to God. Listening God. Here are my tears. Here are our tears. And here are their tears. See them. You do see them. You are God over all. Remember Jesus. Restore us to yourself and restore them, we pray. And listening God, keep us true as we wait for heaven, that place of peace where tears of every kind are no more. Amen.